Father, we want to thank you for the way we've been reminded tonight of the different ways that you work in our lives and the way that you can touch us and move us in a very direct way. And Father, we pray that, that we'll know you speaking as directly as you did to Belshazzar as you wrote there on that wall, that we'll know you speaking and writing on our hearts the truths you want us to hear tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for many people, one of the most thrilling events in the sporting world is to go along to a, a Welsh rugby match and hear the Welsh supporters sing, Bread of Heaven. You know, personally, I have to confess that whenever I, I put on my television set and watch a rugby match and hear that, that Welsh crowd sing, well, I find myself with a, a kind of sense of, of mixed emotions. For while it is thrilling to hear a huge crowd sing such a wonderful hymn so very, very well. Yet at the same time, I often feel a kind of sense of sadness as I hear that crowd sing, for the thought comes to me that this is almost all that is left of the great Welsh revival of 1904-5. During that revival, over 100,000 people were saved. Whole communities turned to the Lord almost en bloc. Churches were built everywhere around Wales for the buildings that they had couldn't contain the crowds that were gathering for worship. And there were marvellous choirs throughout Wales devoted to the singing of God's praises. And now almost all that's left as a memorial to this great movement of God is empty church buildings today. And a semi-inebriated crowd who can still maybe remember the words, but who have lost the reality of the words that they're singing. You see, God worked undoubtedly in the Welsh revival, but the people didn't build on that spiritual experience. They didn't continue to seek God through his word and through prayer. They didn't continue to humble themselves as they had before the Lord. No, nor did the the next generation in any real way seek that same spiritual experience as that of their forefathers. And as I once heard Louis Palau, and I know many have heard it, Louis Palau, the South American evangelist, as I heard them say, God has no grandchildren. Each generation, each individual has to seek the Lord for themselves if they're going to know him in a living and powerful way. Well, I'm afraid that it is a Welsh revival type scenario that we're confronted by here in Daniel chapter 5. For many of you will remember that the last time we looked at Daniel, we saw there how Nebuchadnezzar's pride was broken, how he yielded his life to God, and how this then led to a life-changing experience of the Lord that involved, among other things, Verse 27 of chapter 4, him being kind to the oppressed. That involved them, him not just saying that he loved God, but going on to show that love by loving the people who God loves. As we look here though in chapter 5 at Belshazzar and at the scene that's laid out before us, well you would never think that God had ever been at work, that God had ever spoken in Babylon. Let's look then at what's set before us here. And what I intend to do is, is just first 
clear up a few general points of varying importance before going on to focus in on three particular points. So you might think, and, and quite understandably as we move into chapter 5 here, that the reign of Nebuchadnezzar was yesterday, or at most kind of last year, and now Belshazzar has ascended to the throne. Well, you know, that's not in fact the case. Because experts in the history of Babylon and biblical scholars studying various parallel incidents, etc., they tell us that around 60 years separate the events of Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. You see, by this time, Nebuchadnezzar is long dead and gone. Also, it says here that Belshazzar was king. Well, that was the actual practical reality. Certainly Belshazzar was acting as a king and to all intents and purposes was king, but actually, officially at the time, his father, Nabonidus, was king of Babylon. But you see, for long periods of his reign, he was involved in, in military campaigns in various different parts of his empire for periods at times as long as 10 years. So while he was away then, Belshazzar acted as regent. He ruled as king on his behalf. And that, by the way, explains the reward that later here Belshazzar offers to Daniel. In verse 16, you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. You see, third ranking only after Belshazzar and Nabonidus. But then we, we have the problem that on more than, than one occasion in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is clearly stated to be the father of Belshazzar. For example, in verse 11, the queen calls Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king. So how do we explain this then? Well, there are two, I believe, possibilities. First, it was often the case in biblical times that the followers of a notable man were called his sons. He was their father. For example, those who follow the prophets are called the sons of the prophets. And in 2 Kings 2 verse 12, Elisha calls Elijah my father, even though there was actually no blood relationship at all between these two men. But there's also the possibility that Nebuchadnezzar was in fact Belshazzar's grandfather. At least that's what the historians tell us. That his father, Nabonidus, had married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And so Nebuchadnezzar was father in the sense of being his most famous ancestor. That is the father of his line. Just one other general point before we move on, and that is just please note the part that alcohol played in Belshazzar's downfall. Five times in one way or another, drink, drinking in some form is mentioned in the, the first few verses here. Now, I have to say that I've seen a big change in the attitude towards alcohol among evangelical Christians during my lifetime. When I was first converted, drinking alcohol was universally seen as something that was inherently 
sinful. We're seen as a kind of sign of worldliness. Which makes verses like Psalm 104.15 really hard to come to terms with. That God, it says, makes wine that gladdens the heart of man. But you see, when you actually really study what the Bible says, it soon becomes clear that it's not alcohol per se right across the board that God's against. Rather, it is the abuse of alcohol. It's a good gift abused and taken to excess, drunkenness. This is what God's against. So, Proverbs 23, 20. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. And and I believe what the, the example of Belshazzar here underlines is that alcohol is dangerous. We need to take that into account. It can lead to us doing things that normally we would never think of doing. And it is deceptive. It lowers our inhibitions. It seems like fun initially, but too often it leads to courses of action that can destroy us. For Proverbs 23, quoted earlier, it goes on in verse 32. It says that in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And I want to add in to that in addition that in our society, alcohol abuse is actually much more of a problem than it was for the people of biblical times. So well then, to sum up, I don't think, I don't believe we are or should be commanded not to drink. I don't think that can be laid onto Christians. Yet, I personally, and this is my choice, I always encourage Christians to join me in choosing not to drink because of the damage that alcohol abuse leads to in our society and because of the dangers that alcohol can hold for each one of us. Okay, so now let me, having done that, let me just highlight the particular points here that I promised I would. And the first one is the essence of his sin. The essence of his sin. And the essence, what laid at the heart of Belshazzar's sin here, isn't really too difficult to uncover. That is, he took these goblets, these goblets that had been dedicated for use in the holy worship, in the temple of a holy God, And as he deliberately called for them and used them in this drunken feast, which with the presence of his concubines was to all intents an orgy, well, Belshazzar was rebelling against God in as definite and determined a way as any man possibly could. Yes, and and more, he, he was actually, he was mocking God. He was saying as he did this, that this God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, He is powerless and irrelevant to life. And that rather his gods, his gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, the gods that he worshipped, these material gods that he could make in his own image and set up that would let him live his life as he wished, no matter the cost or the damage involved, either to him or anyone else, that these gods, that his gods, That this world, this material world, 
These are what really matter in life. What we can hold in our hands, this is where the real power lies. Now, let's get things clear. This kind of attitude towards God, rebellious, mocking, seeing God as powerless, as irrelevant to life, imagining that we can live life without his help, without his guidance, that our ways are better than his ways. This kind of attitude consistently throughout history lays at the heart of human sin, is the essence of human sin. So Paul in Romans 8, 7 talks of man and his sin as being hostile to God. I have to say, as I began to look at this, I began to, to think, you know, where do we stand as a nation in this regard? Worshipping gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone. I say, who can doubt that the gods of the material, that the god of materialism, that this god reigns and rules in our nation and its subjects today. People today devote their lives to the material, to the gathering of the material. They think that if only that they've got the goods, that then they've got what really matters in life, then They've made it. And you know, every weekend, every Sunday, people flock to worship at the shopping centres, the shopping malls, that have actually become the cathedrals of worship in our generation. And do we think, do we think in our society that a holy God is irrelevant to life, that he's powerless in life? Well, I believe that the way that we've more and more removed God's standards and God's commands from our nation's law, from our national life, despite the disastrous consequences that increasingly this is leading to in fractured families and in a disintegrating society all around us, that that would seem to suggest that we do think that God is irrelevant to life, powerless in life. And what about Mocking God. Would we have the audacity, even in this increasingly godless age, to mock God? Well, you know, some time ago now, I got some advertising material from Virgin through my letterbox. On the inside of the back page, this is what I read. <laughs> this is what it said. Virgin Mobile are proud to be sponsors of Mardi Gras the largest gay and lesbian event in Europe. Come and check out the Virgin Mobile Red Light Cabaret Club where you have complete freedom to sin. You see, we are mocking God as a nation. But what we have to realise is that when this reaches its climax in the life either of a man or a nation, then that man, that nation are in a dangerous place. For our God is not powerless. He is not irrelevant. And he will not continue to be mocked. He will not have his holy name and character forever trampled down in the dirt of human sin. He's loving and patient and forbearing. Yes, he is. But the time comes when even this patient God says, enough. 
It's enough. And this is what I want us to move on to look at now. The reality of his judgment. Of God's judgment on Belshazzar. Which is it's introduced for us here in, in truly dramatic form. That is what must have seemed to, to Belshazzar. Like a, a ghostly hand. Stretching out and tracing its message on the right plaster wall. And I love the details there in verse 5 and 6. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. She does not bear the, the stamp of real eyewitness as close as you can get to it authenticity. Who else but an eyewitness would include details like that? But you see, we're told that the queen hears all the hullabaloo that this obviously causes. And I think we can deduce that this king, this queen here, sorry, because she wasn't at this feast with Belshazzar's wives, plus the fact that she's such detailed knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar's early years, I think we can deduce that she was actually Nebuchadnezzar's wife and more of a kind of a a queen mother type figure. But here in the furore that's been caused, she goes into the feast and, and she sees and hears what has happened and she advises Belshazzar to call on Daniel. To call on Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted advisor who will be able to tell him what this writing means. And it's interesting that it would seem that by this time that Daniel is almost unknown. That this man who had been Nebuchadnezzar's chief advisor, that he's become a forgotten nobody in Belshazzar's kingdom. Another sure sign of how far under Belshazzar's leadership this nation has turned from the changes that God brought to them through Nebuchadnezzar Again, influenced by Daniel. But you know, also, surely, there has to be tremendous encouragement here in this for us. For Daniel, you see, the man of God, the man of the word, he seemingly had had his day. It was in the past. Has it been the most influential voice in Babylon once? But think of it here. For years, no one had saw him. No one had listened to him. He was yesterday's man. His was a faith, as we've seen, that's now seen as irrelevant and powerless. A faith that's to be mocked. I don't know, do you think that would have stopped Daniel standing up for his faith and sharing his faith? I don't think so. Do you think the man who had the courage to share God's judgment with Nebuchadnezzar, do you think he would be silenced totally just because he found himself living in a totally faithless generation and found his words to be out of fashion? No. And what's important is here we see that as faithful Daniel kept on, that Daniel's time came again. That the time came again for the man of God and for the word of God. The time for God came Again. So I want to say to you, it's happened again and again in, in the history of this nation, in the history of the world. Be encouraged. If we remain faithful, the time will come again for us also, for God's people. The time for his word, the time for God will come again. 
God's time will come again. Just imagine though the scene that met Daniel's eyes. There's a man now aged around 80. He's called into Belshazzar's presence. And the first thing he sees is this king and his drunken entourage. And then he sees these precious goblets lying scattered around. He probably hadn't seen them since he was a boy. And they were being used in the worship of the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem. Because Nebuchadnezzar had had the respect, as verse 2 of chapter 1 tells us, to keep them locked away in his treasure chest. But now he looks and he sees how disgracefully they've been used. And he sees how in this God has been dishonored. And then he looks and he sees the words that spell God's judgment written on that wall. Notice here, though, that there's quite a contrast, not only in the way that Daniel responds to Belshazzar, but also in the way that God deals with Belshazzar in comparison with what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. For instance, just one, Daniel refuses Belshazzar's offer of rewards, but he was happy to accept Nebuchadnezzar's. I mean, I think we find the main reason for this difference in verse 22. And we find it in two words. You knew. You knew. You see, Belshazzar knew. He'd been told all about God, all about his power, his glory, his holiness. He'd been told about what he'd done to Nebuchadnezzar. What he'd done in Nebuchadnezzar. How he'd broken his pride and filled him with that new love for God and for man. And how God had made him a greater king. And even more importantly, an infinitely better man than he'd ever been before. Belshazzar had known all about this. He'd been told about it. He'd heard about it. And he decided he wanted nothing to do with it. That he wanted nothing to do with this sovereign God, this God of power, of love, of holiness. Now he decided he wanted to live life his way. That he wanted to set his own standards, not live by God's. So he rejected God. He turned his back on the knowledge of God that was his. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, in his early days, He was ignorant of the true God, the living God. He knew nothing of God, but deeply flawed man that he undoubtedly was, at the core of his being, he had a heart for God. And the Lord saw that, he knew that, and so the Lord persevered with him. Belshazzar is though a different proposition altogether. And so now Daniel reads and interprets the words of God's judgment on him. And each, many, tekel, peres, or or parson, each of them is a measure of weight. But each also, as Daniel makes clear, has an underlying meaning, a meaning which puncture various illusions that Belshazzar has been living under. First, many, numbered. The illusion here is 
that it's my life. It's my life. I'm in charge. I'm responsible to no one. I'm accountable to no one. But you see, the truth is that God's in charge. The truth is that our days are numbered and they're numbered by him. The truth is that we're all accountable to him and he decides when we'll be brought to account to answer to him. That's the first judgment Belshazzar had. Many. Numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You see, he thought his life would go on forever. He thought that he'd live as long as he wanted. He would live as he wanted. Well, it wasn't like that for him. And it isn't like that for any of us. Our days are numbered by God. He's the one who's in control. Second is Tekel, Wade. And you see the illusion here is the thought that he could get away with it in life. That he could live however he wanted. That he could do wrong because of who he was. And it wouldn't matter. What he finds out now, that it does matter. It does, that it matters to God. And that his life has been weighed by God. It's been measured by God. And he has been found wanting. He has been found to fall short. By God. Now let me tell you. There's nothing in life. That matters more than this. You know some of us live. As if the greatest disaster in life. Would be if some people thought ill of us. If we were embarrassed. Or if we didn't make the grade in our job. If we were felt to have failed in some way in life. But that's the worst disaster. That can happen. Let me tell you. These things don't matter. Certainly not when pride is at the root of them. I'll tell you what matters. What matters is that when we come to the end of our days and our lives are found to have fallen short of the mark by God, that's what matters. Finally, Perez, Parson, divided. So so Belshazzar's kingdom are to be divided. His kingdom and his life are to be taken from him in one fell swoop. The illusion here that I've got time to get things right. That I'm just going to live life as it comes to me. And you know, the big things in life, the big questions in life, you know, I'll get around to them later. But for now, I'm just going to enjoy life and live it as I want. No, it's not that way. We've got one life to get things right with God. We've got one opportunity to sort our lives out before God. And now is the time to do it. We can't wait for tomorrow. Because you know, we don't know if we'll have a tomorrow. Daniel though, finished sharing this word of God's judgment. And he waited for Belshazzar. To respond. And again here, Belshazzar had the chance to do what Nebuchadnezzar did. He had the chance to do what the prodigal son did. He had the chance to do what the thief on the cross did. He had the chance, 
to turn and to seek God's forgiveness. But he didn't. He continued to reject God. And so that very night, he died under the judgment of God. What I want to finish now by looking at is having looked at the reality of God's judgment of Belshazzar. I want us to finish now by looking at our reality. What's our reality? Our reality is that our days are numbered. Our reality is that one day our lives are going to be weighed. One day we are going to have to give an answer for the way our lives have been lived. And one day our lives are going to be divided. One day we are going to have to face God's final judgment. And you see, the standard we are called to reach and were actually originally importantly created with the potential to reach is God's perfection. The bad news is, and this is something that I believe in our heart of hearts that all of us know, is that when our lives are weighed, we fall so far short. But here's the good news. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to this earth, God in human flesh, to offer up his perfect life as the payment for all our sin and imperfection. He came, the God-man, as a man, to stand in our place, as God, to pay that perfect price man could never pay. He took the judgment that was ours so that we need have no fear of judgment. And you see, tonight, if we are Christians, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we indeed need have no fear. No fear in the sense that heaven, that eternal life with God is now our guaranteed destiny. That's what Jesus Christ has won for us. But you know, having said that, even as Christians, there is a form of judgment that we do have to face. For 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 tells us that all will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now you see, for the Christian in the main, what this judgment is going to be about is whether or not we will hear God's well done. If we've lived our life in a way that pleases God. I want to say to you, don't belittle that. Don't think little of that. Be assured that those words will matter more in heaven than all of this world's wealth does now. So here's the question. Is your life right now in the kind of shape where you would be ready to come face to face with God? For example, are you showing his love in your life in the way you should? Or is there a grudge you're holding on to? Is there a lack of forgiveness in your heart tonight that needs to be dealt with? And are you showing his holiness in your life? Or is there a sin that you're holding on to? Is there a sin, is there something that's dominating your life that you know needs to be brought before God and broken and dealt with as it can be by the power of the Holy Spirit? In addition, are you showing his compassion and care in your life. For remember, 
Today and every single day, over 34,000 people die of starvation in the world. And it doesn't just happen in an instant. They weep and they suffer before often they die in front of their parents' eyes. And today, right now, 1.3 billion people in Rising live on less than 70 pence a day. With all that that means in relation to shelter and clothing, food, health and education. Do we care about that? Do we really care? And do we show that we care? Do we care enough to do something? And not just for the poor of the world, but for the relatively poor in our own community, in, on our doorstep. So is your life ready to be numbered, weighed, divided? Are you ready to stand before God? If you look into your heart and the answer is no, then I beg you, sort out what needs to be sorted out in your life today. Tomorrow might be too late. Do it today. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, then I say I want to beg you, sort out your life tonight by taking hold of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Don't try and face God's judgment on your own. And don't try and hide from it and put off dealing with it. Certainly don't let Belshazzar turn your back on God. Because you see, one day if you persist in this, then God may strive no longer with you either. God may leave you to face the judgment you seem determined to face by yourself. Don't do that. Rather, by faith, grab hold of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Let me finish with a, a story. Max Dupree is a famous American business leader whose father lived until he was almost 100. Actually, Max Dupree's now in his 90s himself. Anyway, age 98, his father had an accident. He broke his leg and he ended up in a hospital for the first time in his life. And late at night, Max Dupree got a phone call from the hospital. Your dad is sitting in his chair, refusing to go to bed. He went to hospital to investigate, and sure enough, there was his dad sitting in his chair, surrounded by four nurses. And Max asked him, Dad, what's wrong? He said, I'm tired, but I won't go to bed. Why? Because I'll die. But you've told me for years that you're ready to die. He said, I am, but not today. Now you see, tonight, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear judgment. You don't have to leave life with unfinished business. You don't. Because tonight, through faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his life and power that comes into your life by faith, Tonight, you can get right with God. Don't wait. Get right with him. Right now. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the way that you reach out your hand in grace. And Lord, we know you're reaching out tonight to us. Perhaps we're here and we have heard all about Jesus and we understand what the gospel means and we see our need, but we still hesitate to take that step and put our faith in him. But tonight, may it be the night when we grab hold of all Jesus has done. Or maybe we're here and there's some way that we're blocking your grace out of our lives. There's maybe a grudge we're holding. There's a lack of forgiveness. There's something that's not right in our relationship with you. Lord, help us to deal with that. Help us to get right with you and to get right with you now. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.